Okay, what he actually means is I'm going to go row 5K. I'm going to get in upstream and a float 5K <laughs> down the river. I'm going to step out and be like, look at that, man. I did 5K. Look at me. You, you're accepting that you're going to do it wrong. And the other way, you're kind of like, oh, no, I don't want to do it wrong. But in this discovery mode, you're kind of saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. But then you know what those are. Um, had a debut of my, or my sculling career. I rode the mixed B double at Master Nationals in 2012. And my hands end up like Welcome back to the Corona Crew, a conversation had by coaches regarding their experiences in the sport of rowing. Our intent is to convey the lessons that we've learned through our own experiences, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, in the hopes that it will connect with the experiences you're facing or things you may be thinking about. This is episode eight. I'm Ryan Sparks. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, topic of the day today is sculling. Uh, you know, as we sit here starting to picture what rowing is going to be like over the next couple of weeks and next couple of months, um, you know, certainly this idea of small boats is something that's on everybody's mind, whether it's demand and getting them or, you know, how you're going to make it work within your club. So it, we've got Jesse Folia and Nick Parker back. Um, I'm Katie Lane, and we're going to kind of go into what we foresee as, you know, past trends, our experiences with sculling, and um, see if we can make some sense out of it. So, um, you know, to kick us off, like, when was the first time that you guys got into a sculling boat? And what was it? I mean, I did a, did like a probably more sculling in high school than I did in did sweep rowing. And I, I would say I still row single on average once per year. Once per year. Good. Yeah. In the head of the once Charles or what? No, like I'll, I'll row maybe 5,000 meters. So certainly not head of the Charles. Nothing competitive. It has to be like the nicest possible day at some point in like September, October or May. And you're like, you know what? Like today would be the good day. And then you go out and you row like seven, eight slide for 5K. Come in, look at your hands. They're super beat up. No, you know, what he actually means is I'm going to go row 5K. I'm going to get in upstream and a float 5K <laughs> down the river. I'm going to step out and be like, look at that, man. I did 5K. Look at me. Pressure for the year. Don't have to do it again. Here we go. Moving on. Uh, Nick, what about you? Sophomore year of college, I had no idea. I just got, I was like, we had one old single in the boathouse and uh, Amanda Purcell was on the team. Um, and she was gone on to coach in a number of places, but at the time we were both just uh, rowing and we, she was like, oh yeah, come on, I'll teach you. And so we got in and that was it, started going. Well, and di didn't you do like a fair amount of like real sculling, like spend like a whole summer yeah. or some time like actually really getting into it so then i got yeah so then after my junior year of college i went out to san diego and literally just rode twice a day for an entire summer um and that was actually one of the best things ever because the morning out in mission bay is usually pretty nice and flat and had a really good group of robust masters rowers and scholars who were competitive um, so getting out with them was awesome and uh but then in the afternoons the water was rough and we still went out 
So actually that was some of the best sculling experience I got because the morning was pretty consistent and the afternoons you had to learn how to manage current and tide and rough water and shifting conditions and salt and seals jumping over your stern. Like it was great, but it was pretty fun. There you go. Hmm. I jumped in my first single after college. Um, as I was kind of starting to teach novices at CRI and coach novices during the IRL. Um, and we certainly dinked around in tubbies just for fun. Um, but then was this kind of just self-taught myself how to move a single. So I guess kind of like Jesse every now and then I drag my butt up to the Charles uh, or drag my butt on the Charles. And I think I would make it to Elliot and then be like, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm good. Um, but then I did a little bit more once I came back to Connecticut during the summers after college. But um, had a debut of my math or my sculling career. I rode the mixed B double at Master Nationals in 2012. Um, not really knowing a lot was also with a newbie master and uh, somebody had taken my oars and looking back on it now, I was using oars that were set for about a six foot five man because there's video like just going and my hands end up like right at my chin. Um, we did not come in last though and we still stayed afloat. So that's my uh, time to fame. But when you say self-taught, oh, sorry, go Jesse. No, I was going to say even with the, the handicap. It was a B category. There was no handicap. I crushed the handicap because he, I think Nolan was 35. And at the time I was 23. So it was just like we barely made it into the B category. It's all your fault, Katie. I know. But, but this is what I wanted to ask is, you said you self-taught. So yeah. how, how did you teach yourself to skull? Uh, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, the basics, the mechanics, like you understand that the oars need to go on the water, that you need to push and the boat moves. But um, it was very much a trial by error. Um, I it took me a while to be able to carry a single by myself. That wasn't necessarily something I started with. Um, but I would go out uh, launching at a riverfront recapture with like a pine art, you know, trainer single um, and kind of work my way up. Um, but after a while, it was like, all right, you know, I got pretty good at it. And then, you know, when I would try and get too uh, aggressive with it, you know, then you end up in the water because then you think you're like, the cat's me out like, yeah, all right. Like I'll start doing some like, tens and pieces of rate and then next thing you know um, at least it was summertime you went for a swim so I never really had a coach like work with me on it um but for me the reason why I got into it and why I wanted to do it a because I thought it was really cool but b I knew that with the groups that I was going to be working with like to have that type of experience and that knowledge at least on a basic level um then I could communicate what I was actually trying to teach and not just learn out of a book. I think it's really interesting when someone like self teaches, because usually when I hear them describe rowing, it's a different process. And they, they really look at the entire experience from a different perspective, because they were never trying to do something someone else told them to do. Mm -hmm. They were always trying to figure out how do I do this thing that maybe I've seen or, but, but I don't yet understand, like there's this discovery component that I actually think is really powerful and like has a really lasting experience, which I think, so it's fascinating that 
that's what you went through. What, when Jesse, when you learned how to row, did you do that? No, but I mean, I had some coaching, but I was going to say, I think I read an article at some point, I, I'd have to go back and find it where they basically did a study on um, like, it was teaching young kids how to skull and they, you know, there, there was a competitive element of it, right? Like I think they set a buoy maybe like 200 meters offshore, right? And there was like a group of people that um, got like pretty in-depth in like instruction on how to row and, and what have you. And then there was a group of kids that were just like given the boat and they were like, figure it out. And I think the group that, if, if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and find this, but like if I remember right, basically the people that got no instruction or like very minimal instruction ended up being like far more confident in like the, the competition element that they did, right? So like race out and back to the buoy. Cause again, you just like, you figure it out. It's instinct at that point. It's like, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna do whatever it takes. What the, you, you, also, you learn because what you're really doing is you don't actually care what it's supposed to look like. You care about mm -hmm. the effect. It's like, am I moving the boat faster? And you're, so from the beginning, you're actually asking the right question and you, you're accepting that you're going to do it wrong. And the other way you're kind of like, oh no, I don't want to do it wrong. But in this discovery mode, you're kind of saying, oh yeah, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but then you know what those are. So, so mm -hmm. I think you're, the breadth of your knowledge or understanding, even if you're a young kid, happens really fast and that lets you go forward. But I also don't think you necessarily know if you're making a mistake, right? Like I think sometimes the instruction is the right factor because all of a sudden you're, you're like basing what you've been told to do on like, is this right or is this wrong? As opposed right. to like, you're like, oh, well maybe that works, but it's not as effective. But I don't think it like creates this like right versus wrong scenario in your head, which can like kind of like really get in the way of you being able to progress. Um, completely I mean like my you know Nick to sort of tie this back into like you know when we were coaching together um, like that year that we bought all those singles and and yep. have the guys go out and, and row them um, I thought it was so interesting that like over the course of like you know six weeks or whatever it was like regardless of the entry-level sculling position coming in by the end of that period the best scholars were the best rowers like yes you know the varsity eight was essentially comprised of maybe the top nine single scholars or something like that but but like whereas the discrepancy started out here within only a few weeks like it was immediately shifted to like the best athletes were the best scholars as well because there was this idea of like i have to figure this out it's important it's competitive Right. So Nick, what was your motivation for switching into that? Because if that's something that you hadn't done before, what prompted you to do that in that given year? What benefit did you think that that would have? Well, I thought we, we were trying to give people a little bit more awareness of how they move and how they move as a rower and then how that connects to the boat. And we just, you know, we thought we, we have a really good group of, te of, of guys, but as a team, we need to be more skilled when it comes to our movement. And so we wanted to give that opportunity. Um, and then we had had just some really good chats about it. And we had a waterway that was really, that afforded us that. It was something that we hadn't had before. Um, and so we said, okay, well, let's go with it. 
And it, it ended up being really valuable. And I'll echo what Jesse says. I mean, I remember when John Maloney got into the single skull for the first time, um, you know, it was, it was pretty funny. It was really entertaining. And he was like, Nick, this is never going to work. And like, I can't do this. And then, you know, just as Jesse says, you know, six, seven weeks later, when we run these like series of Friday pieces, you know, he's in, he got like sixth or fifth. I mean, it was just absurd. Um, and he was a little guy. He was like 143 pound weigh-in. So I think the, the goal was to give him some good movement awareness and help him kind of figure that out. Um, and hope that they could then bring that back into the eight, which is an entire different conversation. Well, and I feel like a lot of the conversation also was surrounding this idea of like singular ownership. Yes, you're right. Accountability. Like, like creating an environment where literally like, you know, because we bought all of the exact same boat, we bought all of the exact same oars. Cause I feel like oftentimes, and, and I don't know, like you work with athletes and they'll oftentimes like I, I hate this terminology of they'll like explain away a result. Like they'll be like, oh, well, we were in this type of equipment or you know, yeah. this particular thing. And I think by, by setting it up, it like all of a sudden made it completely athlete focused. So there was mm -hmm. just like, there was no excuse at the end of it as, as far as like your performance was indicative of what you were capable of and you couldn't really explain away why it didn't work like it wasn't a good combination it wasn't the right piece like you know they had a newer boat than we had or, or what have you and i think like i don't know that that to me that's like the most valuable element of of being able to because it's the only way to do truly individual assessment on the water and rowing right like mm -hmm. you could do seat racing yep. but like seat racing there's so many variables that come into play there's right you know, the combination is somebody in your boat like you know a little bit sick it, there's just all these kinds of things and i think the the thing that i love about utilizing the single is like it's a great training tool for sure but it's like the most pure sense of comparison or competition in a, in a sport that is obviously at the collegiate level pretty much dominated exclusively by like team boats mm -hmm. i remember a couple of years ago i started to shift my recruiting focus when i came into Penn, I talked with um, Wes about it. Um, and one of the things that we started to look at was more, or we started to weigh uh, the aspect of small boat rowing a lot heavier than we had, like not necessarily replacing something like an erg score or any of the traditional variables or criteria that we would look at. Um, but that we started to look at, all right, if somebody has spent significant time in a single or a pair in an, in an environment that they have to hold themselves accountable, then they're going to have a greater, you know, vulner or they're going to be more willing to experiment and take greater risks, right? Because now they're not, they grew up in an environment where they're not automatically pointing the finger at somebody else or other variables like if they do well on a single great that is their own success that they can take hold for it and so we started valuing that in you know the criteria that we would look for um and it's it turned out to be pretty well the freshman class that we had come in once we like it started that already had a very or had a stronger level of fundamental skill than people who had been in sweet boats all their life that was a pretty interesting like changeover oh yeah i mean those are the kids that like load the trailer de-rig and rig the boats like that figure out like how to you know put a new spacer on or i i mean i, I think 
like that's you know again sort of putting this like total ownership or onus on the person like when you're out there and like you're the only one that's responsible like you have to figure those things out and i think mm-hmm. it's it's teaching you things without having to teach right like if we talk about coaching like i feel like the most powerful environments are the ones where the environment is the teaching tool not the coach or i think that's what like the best coaches do they are able to create an environment where learning is happening based on the environment not based upon the teacher themselves and mm-hmm. absolutely cool that you can pull from your toolbox or you know if you're trying to set up your practice or whatever like you would a classroom like that that is a piece of the puzzle in the classroom that allows learn like learning to be i mean because i think we can all agree like the most powerful lessons that we ever learn are the ones that are self-taught it's not so much like what someone else yeah. told you it's like those moments that you figured it out on your own mm-hmm. that is so often the danger in coaching is that you interrupt that experience for the rower when they were they were on that pathway and so then you end up robbing them of this aha moment where they connect all the dots the light bulb um, moment and they're they're so powerful because they give you this sense of confidence that you're like oh I can do this. And then when something else challenges you in your future, you're like, oh, well, I can do this too because the last 15 challenges, I figured it out. And, and I really like that. Um, and you, you end up having this really great conversation with yourself, right? Where, where you, you talk about, oh, here's what I can do. Here's what I can't. And suddenly like you are more aware of what you can do as a rower, as an athlete, as an individual than you were before. And I think that's one of the things we're looking for in, in the sport is to kind of develop that sense of awareness. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I think on an earlier episode of this, we were talking about um, like less lessons that you wish you had known or like what you would mm-hmm. tell yourself. And I think probably like that relates back to that really specifically, right? Like in, in the early days, you're just so eager to get to the answer that like you give the athlete the answer. You have no patience about it because you're like, I know this, I know this, I know this. Mm-hmm. And, and you like want to like prove to yourself um, that, you know, like, you know, it and you want the athletes to like, you know, revere you because you have these answers. Um, and then, you know, I think the longer you've gone on, the better you get at being like, I don't know the answer, but also being again, like you were saying, Nick patient about like sitting back and being like, okay, they're, they're on the right path and maybe getting better about sort of like helping to deflect them one way or other, like shepherd them through that process a little bit more. Um, and, and, you know, act as a bumper, so to speak, rather than like just taking the answer and like slam dunking it down their throat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, take a look at how HP groups are really coached, right? Like certainly the training plan's given, right? They're sent out in a bunch of singles. The coach is usually there working with people like here and there, but for the most part, it's very much like a, an individual thing. So, I mean, I talk about like, if that's the, if that's the elite and we start at the beginner, how far are we away from, or like how big is that discrepancy, right? Like the juniors that are learning, like, all right, um, that are surrounded by HP athletes that may be training with a higher group or Nick, like you said, you were training with like masters, right? Like how, how much of a learning curve or how steep of your learning, how steep was your learning curve 
when you were in that environment. It was like either keep up or get left behind. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep up or left behind was good. But I also, the way it was structured, you know, we were, were, were rowing in like Sea World Channel. So you could fall behind, but then you would meet up with everyone again. So you got multiple opportunities and that made it less frustrating because if it was just you're left behind and sorry about your luck, right. then, you, then you felt alone. What was great is that you could make the mistake, you know, get dropped and then figure it out and try it again and try it again right. and try it again. But that's the environment that was set out. Yeah. Jesse, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to disagree because I, I think like comparing like elite level rowing and like the entry stages of it isn't really like a fair comparison because I think elite level rowing is very selfish. Like if you talk to anybody that's like rowed at the Olympic level or like sort of mm -hmm. pursued that dream, like the first, the, the, I, I feel like in every conversation that I've had with those people, like the two things that come up are that like they have to be very selfish and it's very lonely. And I think at every other level of the sport, like those are the two things that you're trying to like completely push out of the sport, right? Like what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to create like a sense of team, you know, everything that we do, whether it's the junior level or the collegiate level, it's all about like the whole group more than it is about the individual. Um, so I, I don't know, that just sort of like came to my, like I didn't want to sort of think about it as like, cause I think the other thing is at that level versus like the entry level, like you're, you're no longer looking at the enjoyment quotient in the same way. Like I think you start out in the sport all about trying to make it as fun as possible. Like I, I, um, I know, you know, the coach is down in Sarasota pretty well. And I, I have a lot of like respect for the way that program is run because they um, like they have like 50 or 60 elementary school kids and like, you know, 120 middle school kids. And basically all they do with them is like put them in these little like I think they're called cult singles and they like have the little pontoons that float and they like mm -hmm. if you were to watch the practice, you would say it was absolute chaos, right? Like it's like a bunch mm -hmm. of water striders like out there. And you know, some kids like leaning out over the rigger, like turning his oarlock around. Some kids just jumping out of the boat because he's bored. Um <laughs> but like it's it there, there's very little structure to make it as fun as possible. And right. and I think you, you've seen obviously they've done a really good job of like building the program into one of the most competitive junior but i think it, it all comes back to this idea of like making it fun to begin with mm -hmm. because you're allowing people to play yeah like in human play is really the foundation of all learning like that that initiation of figuring out how to do something when you're a toddler walking across the room you're just playing in your environment so i think mm -hmm reliving that similar experience when you're learning how to row is one way to develop similar connections and really like discover what it is and, and enjoy it. But it is a very different experience. You're right. But should it be? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think the, the difference is all about the outcome, right? The further along in, in the sport that you go, the more outcome based it gets. I mean, what, like, I, I, I don't know. If, I mean, I, I'm not an Olympic level athlete or anything, but I, I don't no, think you're just an all-star learn to row athlete as we discovered in earlier episodes. Exactly. All-star learn to row. But 
I, I mean, I don't think anybody shows up at the Olympic level to participate, right? There's nothing participate like participatory about it. I think it, it completely relies mm -hmm. on the outcome based. It, maybe not. I mean, I don't know that that's like a much tougher question, I guess, because it's hard to know what individual motivations are. I think it may be hard for those athletes to also know what their real motivations are, even at the time. I think often it's like, oh, I want to do this because I'm winning, but they, you know, they end up discovering the different reasons. Um, you know, I think when I started coaching, I wanted to coach because I was like, I wanted to win, but it's definitely not what motivates me at all anymore. Like, I, yeah, that's everybody wants to mm -hmm. win, but like, there's a lot of other enjoyment that I get. I don't know if I would have known that at the time. Um, so I wonder what that experience is like for an elite scholar. And it is such a crazy internal monologue that you're having with yourself all the time. And I think we've, we've talked on that a few times. Um, but I also feel that you're probably at your best when you're out there having fun. Um, I remember one of the things we did, Jesse, when we were talking about the 2016 crew in the three weeks between the sprints and the IRA, was we started playing balance games, like mm -hmm. literally games like, oh, like, okay, we're gonna bounce here and then we're gonna like take your foot out. And then we, we were just goofing around, mm -hmm. but for balance. And after a couple of weeks of those games, they, they could move around in that boat however they wanted. And it was just set up like a rock. Mm -hmm. So we got this great outcome just from having fun. So I think even if that's, even if that wasn't necessarily always the goal, there's ways to mix in this idea of human play where you really develop mm -hmm. the skills that can then impact what you're doing on the on race day. That, I think there's a couple of programs out there that do that, or there's a handful of them, right? I think of um, the Canadian system, the identification system, like the next gen program or um, whatever it is, race to the podium, um, where they take non-athletes who clearly I have potential and they identify skill and then they just work with them in a single it's like all right you have to check all of these boxes like before you can even try and like take strokes at a longer pace it's just very much the skill so it's like all right stand up in the boat like take your oar out dip on the other side put it back in or like do like you know 20 rigger taps without going in the water um i know seattle scholars out out on the west coast matt matt Zatorsky does the same thing and you look at the outcome of the programs and the kids that come out of these programs are just they have such a more not such a more but a greater appreciation for you know the work that they're doing because they can rely on the comfort of being balanced and having fun i mean that's that's like my go-to in the last two weeks of the season like because you've, you've gotten to the point where you've like tried everything right like you've gone through like you've tried every drill you've like experimented with rigging like you've just done all the stuff and you're, you're kind of like left with all right this is the product and we just need to like have fun and you get do like the most basic things so i always do like you know the screaming eagle or like have the coxswain stand up in the boat or like rowing without basically stuff that is just like not i wouldn't say is Part of like a technical progression but is much more just a like way to get people because it also the thing i think it helps a lot with is it just takes the focus off of like all the twitchy little things that have been bothering you all season where it's like oh the boat is down to starboard all the time 
time, right? Like, mm-hmm. and we just can't get it off starboard, right? Like, and then and then that becomes like the focal point where they're just doing. So you can like remove that like tension and energy because I think athletes get super wound up as you approach the end of the season, right? So if you can take the focus off that by, all right, we're going to do something that's like completely outside of the box. And like everybody has to get behind in order to be able to like make it worthwhile. Take a step back. So we talk about, we're talking about sculling and how many benefits there are of like, you know, this idea of having fun and, and everything with the current landscape and the environment that we're going into where sculling is going to be the, frankly, the only outlet for right now, unless you've got, you know, seven brothers and sisters that you can all stick in an eight. Um, but how, how do you got, how do the two of you foresee the experience with sculling playing out in the next you know, say a couple months with summer programs, but also leading back into the collegiate season. Do you still think it's going to be able to have that same, you know, fun, innocent experience, or is it going to come with a lot of stress and everything else? Well, I, I think I think the question I would ask before that um, would be how important, or how, like how 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 do you typically integrate sculling into like the standard program that's fair how would you foresee well i guess that would be the question i would ask first and then how you typically do it how you would alter that based on the current landscape that's fair do you want to answer your own question no i want you to answer it katie um with the programs that I've worked with, yeah, especially at the collegiate level, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of sculling. I know the last year at Penn, we, or this past fall at Penn, we did do a lot more sculling, but it was more so in doubles and quads. But when it was mainly, we would use them for athletes who had, I'm not going to use the word significant, but they had experience in those boats. And then we would also use them for kind of beginner athletes, but we wouldn't necessarily take them on training trips or anything like that, but it was a tool to have, but I w- wouldn't say that we would use it on a, con- uh, use the boats on a consistent basis. So for a program like that to try and incorporate more sculling, I think would, would be an easier transition um, because they were, it was already starting to function in um, or filter in, but the other programs, I think it would be a pretty big shock um, just because that we didn't have access to it. I don't think, and Nick knows the Harlem. Well, no, you both know the Harlem. Um, I mean, I think of like Fordham University and trying to, you know, ship out say 20 singles. And like, I don't think half of them would come back afloat just because of the nature of the wakes and uh, you know, the Boston Whalers from this like light blue school of the river that were always waking us out. Um, you know, not pointing any elbows, but it may have rhymed with uh, Olympia. Um, Forget about but, a float. Like, I don't think they would have come back period. Right? Like they're, they're, sucked in by the notorious spite and dival just right down to the bottom of the harlem river you know again to me we would just have to see but i think for for programs like that i i would view it more so as a not a shock but certainly a big change that i don't know how i couldn't predict how the athletes would respond to it but i think at the end of the day that's that's what they would have and that's what we would need to make do with i'm i'm going to walk it back even farther jesse i would say i want to ask this what are you trying to accomplish by adding singles 
to your collegiate rowing program? Did you uh, already just answer that? We, 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 we talked about it a little bit, but I want to make sure that, that, that that's where it is. Yeah, I, I mean, what are you, to, to me, ab above everything else, like above the skills, above everything else, it's like, it creates a sense of like individualized ownership. Like to, if, if I were going to integrate single sculling into the collegiate program that I'm in charge of, then like my number one emphasis for it above any of the rowing specific stuff is going to be based on a platform in which the athlete has total ownership over their outcome. What do you think the biggest obstacle to implementing that is? Um, I think you have to make like sacrifices in other areas, right? Because like every program, I, I don't know, you, you always have a bunch of ideas, right? And it's all about prioritization of the thing that you think is the most important. So if you're going to, for example, from a financial standpoint, decide that you're going to do that, it's going to require financial investment where, you know, you're going to go out and buy eight or 10 boats kind of right off the bat. But that means that maybe you don't get a new eight for a couple of years or you don't get the ergs that you need or something like that. So I think that's probably in my eyes is like being, being willing, like, and not scared to take the step to prioritize that as something that's valuable. Absolutely. I'm on the same page with that. I, I want to, cause I think that's one of the things where we talk about sculling. We, we often talk about, well, it's developing this skill, it's developing everything else, but I, I agree with you. I think the most important thing is that it gives this sense of self-reliance and that you learn how to do it. And in which case I would be willing to embrace that for a long-term gain, even if it meant short-term, like, you know, my team might have a, we might not be quite as advanced in rowing the eight, but if long-term that creates an environment that's going to help more people be successful, I think it's great. And I also think to your point, earlier, which is really important to emphasize, the best athletes will figure it out. Mm -hmm. They will figure it out and they will be better because of it. And the athletes who don't figure it out will see that they can and hopefully they'll redouble their investment on trying to figure it out. And I think in that way, everybody can grow. It may take time, which means right now, this is the, this is the time to do something mm -hmm. like this. I think that's sort of to build on that too. I think one of the things that I think is really valuable in, if you're going to invest in that is the athletes have to have accessibility to being able to find ways to get better. Right. So mm -hmm. like, can you set up an environment where the athlete has sort of, you know, obviously maybe not unlimited, but like, again, providing these, periods of time where it's like oh yeah you can you know bike out to overpack or you can come down to the boathouse or whatever mm -hmm. it is and if you want to get better at this like you have access to this tool in order to improve i think that's the other thing is like figuring out in your particular context how you can make that a possibility or a reality um yeah mm -hmm. so i did that all the time because i got a single and then our campus, you know, we had this dammed river at the time, which is no longer dammed. That means you, you had a 3,000 meter stretch of water you could row on. And I mean, I, I didn't do my steady state 
on an erg. I was out on in my single even in January, February. I mean, unless it was, you know, 25 or below, we were out and the river was so polluted that it didn't freeze until 25 or 26, <laughs> right? Um, you know, God bless Ohio. But uh, it was really valuable because I had all this access. So I think that's a, a good point that I had forgotten and I'm glad you brought up because if anyone does decide, oh, we're going to do this, creating access is something you have to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so we've all established that we think it's important, but does it help your sweep rowing? Wait, I'm gonna bet we're gonna go through another question first. Well, how how come you get to be the one that decides which questions? Like, I have <laughs> because I no, because I have an, I have one that's better than that. So, for do you chicken or the egg story, sweep or skull first? Skull. skull. That's a trick question. I just wanted to see if we were all on the same page, but okay, proceed, Jesse. <laughs> so, so I asked the question, does it actually help your sweep rowing? Right? We've all yes. established. Yeah. How? Because I think you have a better sense of, you know, what it means to, to move a boat and, and with the physics behind it, because you're, it's the accountability factor. I'm going to rest back on that first and foremost, right? Consistency effort but then as it pertains to like lifting off the front end and knowing how to move your own body weight and hold yourself accountable that way yeah it's a huge tool those would be yeah, my two basic answers I you can disagree I, with me well i just don't think that like it, it there, there's a direct correlation always like i don't think as you improve your sculling you always get better at your sweep rowing well i wouldn't say that but i think that like i like, I'm not looking at it as like, all right, if you become a better scholar, you become a better sweeper. But I think having, having an understanding of sculling will benefit your sweep career. I'm not necessarily looking at it as like a holding hands relationship and they extend together. Like, but I think one does lead into a steeper curve with me, that one. So I think there's some elements that help people improve their sweep rowing. And so I think how you foster that sculling environment will have a big impact on how much it helps your sweep rowing. So one of the benefits I believe you get in a single is you really get to see what's happening with the boat as a result of your rowing. Mm -hmm. And so you get to see what that is. And if you have coaches who are directing you to that effect, so they're saying, you know, so look, when you take the catch like this, the stern is dipping way deep down into the scene. But when you take it like this, the boat continues to glide a little bit better. And that is a connection that you can see in a single, but it's hard to see if you're sitting three seat in an eight, it's hard to feel. So the question, I, I think if you are getting that good feedback, you can take it back into a bigger boat and you can start to do it. But there are so many other elements, same thing with seat racing, that you have to have a group of people who understand the metaphor who understand, okay, this is what I'm trying to achieve. And then they still have to relearn the entire process of how to make it work in an aid, which I think is was a bit of what Jesse's saying. It doesn't, there's not necessarily a correlation. It doesn't mean you're gonna be a better sweep rower, but what it may give you is a frame of reference that within mm -hmm. your crew, you can have a little bit more specific focus that you can draw out some of those elements that you could see or feel in a single and you couldn't see or feel in an eight until you really got focused in on them. 
which is the reason why you have to you have to have good coaching. Good coaching and then problem solved. You can speed force go. There you go. Yeah, that we've just answered the world's problem today. Have better coaches so you become better rowers. I mean, I, I think the phrase is less suck, more awesome, right? Absolutely. Suck less. Just do better. Yeah, be better. Well, I think we just nailed, nailed it on its head. Um, and we are starting to run out of time. But what do you think is going to be – no, I'm not going to scratch that. From the answer that we all just gave, you know, sculling before sweeping, right? Why isn't there more sculling in college racing? And do we, do we predict a shift with that, again, moving forward with this whole environment that we're all going to be in small boats for, you know, a given amount of time? I don't, I don't know if Fred Jacques is going to listen to this, uh, but I'm, I'm highly advocating for a singles-only head of the Charles this year. I think that would be awesome. I don't, but I don't think that – I mean, personal opinion, I don't think that the long-term um, – Space of collegiate rowing will shift. Why not? Yeah. Um, I think it's like far too entrenched, and I think there are like, a, I mean, it's maybe a bigger conversation, but I think there's like real advantages to team boats as far as the number of people that can participate, um, as far as the like teamwork aspect of the support. Um, I, I think that if collegiate rowing moved to more of a sculling model, I think it would be a bad thing for college rowing. I agree with Jesse. I think that the history of the sport is why we continue to focus on the eights. And I think we continue to do that because we know those experiences. We know how formative they've been. And we know that even the people who aren't in rowing, when they read the boys in the boat, for example, they're mesmerized by the experience. They're mesmerized by that mm -hmm. shared effort. And I think that's the thing we as coaches and rowers are always trying to bring into it. And that's what collegiate rowing does so well. And I think that's the one thing we want to keep going. We want to re really focus on it. I'd agree. So Fred, I also support the head of the Charles singles. If you're listening, all singles. <laughs> Let's get out. It's up to all boat manufacturers, you know, like put, put a stop on everything else. Um, you know, we certainly see this right now, or I see it. Um, singles are going like hotcakes um, and you, like nobody can keep enough in the in-house, but um, can, can, that would be. We make this like our political mission. Like I'm not technologically or like um, social media uh, like equipped enough, but I know Katie, you are like, you're pretty good at this. So can we make this like a campaign to like, we tag head of Charles and we start like singles 2020. Like, what is it? Sign the petition.com or like petition yeah, for change? Yeah. Something like that. That'd be a lot of singles. That would, but think about how cool, like, I don't know, if that's like the first major rowing event on the backside of this, like, how cool would it be for that to be like a one off? That would have to be like a three day event, though. No way. That just, you think you can still do it in the same two-day format? Absolutely. Where there's a will, there's a way. That basin's going to get mighty crowded, and there's going to be a lot of boats that sink. 
or make make every event a mass start. So like the you know collegiate single is a mass start event. You have you know 55 or 60 boats up there. Attention, go. Are you familiar with the silver skip? Like they do that there all the time. Yeah, it works. Plus, all those repair shops are going to love this idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, it, again, it kind of comes back to what we're talking about at the beginning. You just like create the context and then people figure out how to be successful in it, right? So if that's the context, then we're going to go with it. So I guess there's our wrap up. There's our mission. Uh, so for all listening, uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll send you the petition. Um, Fred Shock, you know, we're coming uh, coming on knock on your door. and. Um, you know, on behalf of Sparks, uh, thanks to Nick and Jesse for coming out and having a great discussion. And we will see you next week. Coming home late, it seems you barely beat the sun. Tapping my shoulder.